Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision. This is Greg Nielsen from Nielsen Training and Consulting, where we work with nonprofit leaders and organizations to translate vision into reality. We are back on the podcast this week after taking a couple of weeks break. I appreciate the uh, a little bit of the time off. Uh, some of our schedules were changing. We're here in Kentucky, where uh, schools are just letting out. So it was nice to have a couple of weeks to get everybody's schedule um, transition back over. But today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Amy Wanninger, and she is the CEO of Lead at Any Level, where she works with organizations that want to build diverse leadership bench strength for a sustainable competitive advantage, which I know many of our nonprofits, all of our nonprofits are really striving for. Amy is also the author of multiple books, which include Network Beyond Bias, Making Diversity a Competitive Advantage for Your Career. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I'm glad to be here. Um, and today's topic, what we really want to focus on, um, comes from your work around Network Beyond Bias. And really, we want to talk about how nonprofit organizations can diversify their organization, their, their pool of stakeholders, whether those be board members um, or volunteers or staff members. So I really appreciate your expertise and you lending that to the podcast today. You bet. So Amy, maybe start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into this work. Sure. Thank you. So how I got into this work is this bizarre, convoluted sort of mess of stuff. I spent 20 years of my career in information technology, first as a developer, then as a manager, um, and then kind of working my way up through the management ranks at an insurance company. Prior to graduating with a computer science degree, I had my ambitions set on going to law school, um, working in the civil rights arena. And I was really drawn to stories about people who overcame disadvantages, people who, um, you know, banded together to to change the status quo. And I thought, wow, I really want to do that work. I want to help with that. And then my senior year of college, um, I learned how much law school would cost. And I learned the meaning of the phrase. I am very phrase. familiar with that cost. Yes. <laughs> and the student and I, loans that accompany it. And the meaning of the phrase pro bono. Yes. Which I had not previously understood. Yes. And I realized law school was not going to be for me because it didn't come from the means to make that happen. And so, you know, I kind of took this 20-year detour. <clears throat> About seven years ago, the company that I worked for hired a chief diversity officer. And I thought, that's an odd title. Never heard of that before. Look into that. So as I did some more research and I realized what this person's mandate was for the company, I was like, I got to get involved in this in some way, right? This has to be my next thing. And I spent countless hours volunteering and doing, you know, a lot of heavy lifting around that work within my organization, even though, you know, it was all volunteer work, right? And most of the people in the DNI sector in the insurance industry, like if doing DNI work, there's a handful of people in the company who are getting paid to do it. And everyone else is just passionate volunteers showing up, you know, even sometimes where we're not wanted to make sure that somebody hears this message or that, you know, the, the needs of the organization or communicate to the people that, that can get that, um, that programming out. And so as I was doing this, I wanted to really share that beyond, um, it, you know, kind of share my learnings and my experiences beyond um, the corporate walls. And so I applied to speak at a conference 
in 2017. So it was the end of 2016, I applied for a 2017 conference and they accepted my proposal based on just a couple of bullet points. And then I thought, oh no, what am I going to do? <laughs> I'm going to put an hour's <laughs> worth of content together, right? And I knew that it, whatever I did, because of the kind of conference it was, it had to appeal to people who were early in their careers, late in their careers, even retirees. It had to appeal to people who had call center jobs, you know, senior management positions at large companies, um, people who owned their own small companies, and everybody in between. And so in thinking about that, I thought, well, all those people, what do they have in common? They all care about their own careers. What do all their careers have in common? They all need strong networks to sustain and move forward. Right. And as I was doing the work and planning out the, the content for that one, one time session, um, I created an assessment to really help people understand where is their network today. And I took my own assessment. I was really confident going in and I was mortified coming out of it. And I thought, well, I've been doing this work for years and my network, everybody in my network that I've chosen looks just like me. Wow. If I'm not doing this the way I think I'm doing it, probably nobody else is either. So that concept then became a book and became, you know, several dozen more conference appearances and um, now my own business where I help people understand, you know, within the con con uh, confines of their organization, but also just individually, what is it that, that we can do to kind of get ourselves where we think we already are. And I think that's part of the issue, right? It's that it's that the first step is awareness of what your net or who is in your network and what communities your network extends to. And, and by contrast, doesn't extend to. Is right. Absolutely. And I think the work, you know, for diversity and inclusion work in particular, it's really hard to get people to be part of the solution if they don't understand that they're part of the existing problem. Right. And so most people say, well, my heart's in the right place. That information, that work is for, you know, they're trying to reach not people like me, right? They're trying to reach bad people. <laughs> and I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. So that's not, I don't need to engage in that. And so those folks don't engage, right? And then the people who really are not interested at all in moving us forward altogether, right? Who enjoy the separation and the comfort of, that comes with separation. Mm -hmm. don't engage because they don't want to change the status quo. Right. right. So if the people who are interested are not invested and the people who are not interested are not invested, who's invested in this work? <laughs> so my, my job as I see it is to help people understand that their heart cannot be in the right place if they never move their feet. That's a great analogy. Um, you. when you, when you talk about, and you mentioned it a minute ago that, you know, as recently as I think it was, you said eight years ago when you first met that, um, chief diversity officer, and that was a relatively new term and a new concept, you know, fast forward to today, you know, eight years is just a split second of time. And there's a whole lot more discussion around diversity and inclusion equity, mm -hmm. um, in the for-profit and also certainly in the nonprofit sector. What do you attribute that? that growth, that kind of sea change to? Well, I think more and more organizations are realizing that we're all competing for the same talent inside our organizations. We are all competing for the same market dollars, whether we're selling a product or service or we're relying on donations. Um, 
you know, there's at any point in time, there's a finite amount of money. There's a finite amount of time. There's a finite amount of interest and and enthusiasm um, and a finite amount of people. Right. And we're all in competition for that all the time. And I think what folks are realizing is, look, the old ways of doing this where we had, you know, um, and, and please forgive me for, for making a generalization, but, you know, I, I think it holds up in most industries in most cases, you know, we have a board of directors with eight middle-aged white guys and the people that they're grooming to take their spots are eight slightly younger white guys. And the people that they will groom are eight slightly white, you know, slightly younger white guys than they are. And that model is not sustainable, right? Our demographics are changing as a country. Our, um, our world is getting smaller. We're competing globally. And it just doesn't, to whatever extent it may have made sense in the past, and I would argue, I could argue that point all day, but even if it made sense in the past, that model does not work and in I our world. To take that one step further and apply it to the nonprofit sector, um, explicitly is that method is not effective when it comes to addressing the mission, when it comes to moving a mission forward. Um, I can't tell you how often I hear from organizations that they are struggling to just get outside of those traditional silos, those typical communities that they already have access to and have access, had access to for years. Right. So many of us struggle to see what isn't there. Yes. Um, and, one you know, a person once shared a, a, a great quote, and I, I wish I could attribute it. I, I forgot where it came from, but they said the people in the room, speaking specifically about nonprofit boards, determine the questions that are asked. Mm. And if you don't have people in the room who are representative of the community at large, and specifically the community that your nonprofit is serving, boy, you're missing out on a lot of insight and a lot of wisdom and some really critical questions that you need to wrestle with. Absolutely. Absolutely. So and for an organization that's looking to get outside of those traditional silos, where do they start? Because a lot of nonprofits will voice this and they'll say, we know we need to diversify our board, our staff, our community of volunteers. How do we start? So they're really, the way I see it, and, and this has been explained to me, I didn't come up with this concept, but there are sort of three different places where we can do this work, three different um, tiers, if you will. There's an internal space where we need to, to work on ourselves and our own thinking. There's this interpersonal space where we actually talk to each other, as crazy <laughs> as that sounds, right? And then there's the, kind of the organizational space where we, we transform the processes and the, you know, kind of the underlying mechanisms of the organizations that we're part of to make room for this new way of thinking. And I'm a firm believer that organizations don't change without changing the people in them. So my work really focuses on the internal and the interpersonal. Okay. And that's, that's the, the basis behind uh, network beyond bias, the book, the program and all of that. <clears throat> There's also, you know, there are other organizations that do, work at the institutional level to talk about, you know, how do we, how do we create, for example, an anti-racist right. not-for-profit organization, which is a completely different animal, right, than a diverse and inclusive yes. not-for-profit, which, you know, you kind of have to step up into those, into those spaces. 
but I really focus on the in, internal and interpersonal. And I think that if we can get a critical mass of people who are thinking about their own careers differently in terms of, you know, the, this creates a competitive advantage for me personally, where I, you know, where I'm living in my own head and in my own space. Like I, you know, I care about feeding my family. I care about the sustainability of my own career. But if we can do that and position and position this work in a way that, you know, says, Oh, by the way, you're missing opportunities specifically because you're so siloed, you know, you're not making enough, you're not making as much money as you could. You're not finding the mentors and the people that could help you because your focus is so narrow. And so I really want to help, help individuals open that up because I feel like within organizations, if you've got a critical mass of individuals, especially, especially you're emerging and aspiring leaders, they are going to be the ones that will carry this forward into the next generation of leadership so that we're not self-replicating those boards. So what I hear you saying, and it makes perfect sense, is that before you can change the culture of an organization, before you can diversify a board of directors, you need to look inward at yourself and confront, as you said, through your assessment, your own individual networks, confront your own perhaps implicit or unconscious bias as well. Absolutely. And I think that's why a lot of conversations start there okay. because, you know, it's very easy to say, you know, look, you're a product of the environment that you're in. We all grew up, you know, most of us in, in this country grew up here in this great soup that is America. Right. And there's so much that we share in terms of the media and, you know, the stories and the folklore of our country and of our society that form our values and our norms. And everything that we see is through that lens, but it's also through the lens of how the world responds to us based on who we are, right? So my experience of the world, the, the example I typically use is like, I don't have depth perception. My experience of being last picked in gym always <laughs> is much different, right? Like I grew up with a different concept of the world just in that respect than somebody who was maybe, you know, a star athlete, right? And that's like one little tiny thing about who I am and, and, you know, like that's just a little tiny sliver. So, you know, if you think about all those ways in which we're different, all the ways that people are responding differently to us based on those variations, mm -hmm. we've all got much different perceptions of the world around us. And that's a great point. So as you, as you're looking inward, there are certainly the things that you know from your own personal experience and you, and you are tangibly aware of. Talk to me a little bit about unconscious bias and how you can um, open yourself up to those things that you might not be aware of already. Sure. So I don't think we can ever undo our unconscious bias. Unconscious bias is, it's all of the decisions that we make without realizing we're making a decision. So it's the default behaviors, it's the patterns and the routines, not just in our behaviors, but in our thought processes. Right. So if you think about the, the way your brain works, like water that's carving a path down a hill, the more you think in those patterns, the deeper those grooves become and the harder it is to change them. Those grooves will probably always be there. But what we can do is recognize them and say, oh, you know what? I need to divert my thinking into a new direction because this old pattern doesn't work for me anymore. 
And as you were saying, you know, there, there are benefits there. Obviously, a lot of organizations, a lot of nonprofits are looking at diversity and inclusion because it's the right thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. But what you're saying is there's also a business case for it. There's also a, um, you know, for, in a for-profit world, you'd call it a monetary incentive. Or for a nonprofit, there could be a mission incentive to moving your program forward in the issue that you're trying to address. Absolutely. One of the one of the simplest examples that I use um, to illustrate this point is <clears throat> I speak at a lot of conferences in different industries around the country, and I've noticed that when I go to the insurance conferences, they're talking about problems. You know, they get all of the insurance thought leaders around the table to talk about problems, right? How are we going to solve these problems? Then I'll go to an, a higher education conference, and they get all the thought leaders from higher education talking about how are we going to solve this spe- specific set of problems. Then I'll go to a tech conference, same thing. All the tech leaders are, you know, panel discussion. How are we going to solve this specific set of problems? And what I've noticed is that specific set of problems is the same across all of those different industries. <laughs> now, imagine what could happen if the insurance or, you know, the insurance world or, the, you know, even a not-for-profit um, were to say, you know what, we're not going to just talk to other thought leaders in the not-for-profit space. We're going to bring in some thought leaders from finance. We're going to bring in some thought leaders from technology. We'll bring in some thought leaders from the government, you know, and really create a cross industry view of how could we solve these problems individually or collectively, because everybody's coming at this with a different solution, right? If you show up to a work site and you've got a hammer in your hand and somebody else has a screwdriver, you're looking at the project a whole lot differently right? And how you're going to fix it, <laughs> right? So if I have, if I have a hammer, every problem's a nail. And if I have a screwdriver, right? So it just, it changes the perspective. And if we all show up with these diverse toolboxes, we can start to create much more um, robust solutions to these same problems that replicate in all of our industries, because we all live in the same soup. And one of the things that that reminds me of is um, and I talk to boards about this all the time, is defining what you mean by diversity. So a lot of times, and particularly if, if an organization is struggling with diversity on their board, they may come to me and say, we, we thought we had it. You know, we recruited ourselves a lawyer, we got an accountant, we got an artist, we have all of these different perspectives. We, the, we got what we thought was supposed to be the right kind of diversity. But they overlook the broad definition of diversity, diversity of ethnicity, gender, uh, and even going beyond that, diversity of personality types. Mm-hmm. So I love talking with boards um, and trying to get them to see themselves through different personality lenses. And, and mm-hmm. particularly if you see an organization that is struggling to um, be creative or think outside the box or is struggling because they have everybody who always agrees and know everyone is conflict diverse, um, that personality type can be as important a diversity criteria as any other. So how do you, how do you go about at the outset defining diversity with organizations that you work with? So I define diversity in a, through a very specific set of lenses um, from a networking perspective. So I talk about industry, um, generation, gender identity, national or, uh, origin, sexual orientation, race and ethnicity, um, because those things are very important in the circles that 
I travel in, right? In the worlds that, that where I navigate, um, you know, for some folks, it might be that religion is a, a primary, um, you know, a primary differentiator in how people look at the world uh, for what they're trying to accomplish. So I think it's important to understand, like, if you've got a group that you're not really happy with the performance or you don't have enough, you know, it, you use the term out of the box thinking, if you don't have enough of that, figure out what these people have in common and then make a point of looking for something different yes. to bring in. But before you do that, you have to make that environment safe and appropriate for those people that you're bringing in different because nobody wants to be a token representative of an outside perspective. No one wants to be the only in that group where they're the only one advocating for a different way of thinking. And you're going to, you know, you're going to have a revolving door on, on those types of um, positions and roles and, and individuals because they're not going to feel safe or supported there. So I, you really have to do the work internally before you go look for somebody else. I hear, I hear exactly what you're saying about that and, and applying it to the boardroom um, for nonprofits. Again, I, I can certainly see that applicability. How would you um, recommend to a board chair, to a nonprofit executive, that they go about creating that type of culture, that type of environment that's welcoming for a new perspective that they may not have in the boardroom. Sure. So, well, of course, the first thing I'm going to say is, have you read my book? (laughs) (laughs) I would expect nothing less. (laughs) Because, you know, I'm not a not-for-profit, right? I'm a business. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I would say take a look at your own, your own personal defaults, your own personal network. And if you are not equipped personally to understand how these different perspectives might enrich your team. Your team is not going to understand how these different perspectives will enrich it either. And you will not be able to articulate that well. So you really have to get a sense of, you know, why is this important to me, to our mission, you know, to our values. And then you need to work with the people on your board to understand that and to really do some internal work to make themselves a welcoming environment for someone different. The other thing I would offer is, you know, who you mentor is so important, but also, I'm sorry, who, who your mentors are is so important, right? Who you mentor is important. But if you think about traditional mentorship, right? Most people, when they're thinking about a mentor, it's someone slightly older, slightly ahead of them in their careers, right? And we have this certain image of what this person needs to look like. And it usually looks like, a, like us in 10 years. <laughs> and I would offer that you can be mentored by someone who is nowhere on your career path, who, with whom you have no demographic intersections, um, that you share very little in common with. And I would argue even further that those are going to be your most valuable mentors. And so if you can find, you know, if, you know, like in my case, I am a woman in my, a white woman in my mid forties, right? I have mentors who are men. I have mentors who are um, people of color. I have mentors in other industries. I have mentors in my own industry, you know, and I try, I'm very intentional about that. You know, sometimes I'll sit down with my own children and say, tell me about, you know, how do you look at this problem? And what they come back with just astounds me because they have these perspectives that I would never have considered. Right. Right. And 
I would argue that anybody that you're learning from on a regular basis is a mentor or anybody that you could be learning from, whether it's, you know, by following them on social media, by reading their, their books or their blog, um, you know, by consuming their podcast content. If you're regularly going to someone for advice, inspiration, or guidance, that person is a mentor. So look at all those places where you go for advice, education, and guidance and ask yourself very critically, do all of those people look like me? Right. So this, and this goes directly to the Network Beyond Bias program. So once you've done that individual work or as a board, your board team has done that work, um, how do you suggest organizations put themselves in those spaces to meet people they otherwise never would have had access to? So once I'm ready, how, how do I go about creating that network, casting that net um, yeah. to find new people? So I think, I think what you said is crucial. Put yourself in different places, right? Don't go where you always go. Don't talk to the same people you always talk to. So I have this notion, and I do this myself. I, have a, I created a journal to go with my book because I wanted a way to hold myself accountable for the long term and build these habits and build some muscle memory around this. And so periodically in my journal, I reassess my network based on who did I talk to most recently in each of these categories. And then I have to ask myself, okay, where do I need to be more intentional in the coming month so that I'm closing some of these gaps that I'm seeing? Because you can go too far in one direction, right? Where I'm going to focus on diversifying in terms of, of race and ethnicity, but I'm completely ignoring things like national origin or sexual orientation or social class or religion or whatever the other things are that are important to you. And so it's just this constant um, attention and intention to doing this work. But some of the things that I recommend to people, you know, people say, well, this is scary stuff, right? Like I don't want to walk outside of my own neighborhood and, you know, step into a, a, um, conference that's for another industry with people that I don't know, you know, and okay, start simple, right? Who do you follow on Twitter? Change that. Who do you follow on LinkedIn? Change that. Start listening to the conversations that don't include and involve you, especially if you're in, you know, if you're in the dominant culture um, and follow those conversations, not to intervene, not to enter, you know, not to insert your own will or your own opinion, but to understand the nuance of those discussions from different perspectives, none of which are your own. So, and what I'm hearing from you is that is it has to be intentional. That, that diversifying your network is not simply going to happen um, by opening yourself up to the universe making it happen for you. You have to intentionally put yourself in spaces and situations that you might find uncomfortable at first. Absolutely. And, you know, I've done this so many times with so many people. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people, possibly thousands of people have gone through this exercise. And I can think of two people out of all of those folks, two that looked at their grid and said, yeah, this feels good. Right. right. So if it were going to happen just because we think that we're good people and it's just going to happen for us, I think the number would be higher than two out of those hundreds. So right? it in your work, you talk about the five critical connections that you have to make for your career. You call it champ network. Is that yes. right? Okay. Tell me a little bit about that before we wrap up. 
Sure. So this is like the first part of this assessment that I do. And I have this, you know, if you've ever heard the, the notion that you are, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? Yes. So that's one input into this thought process. But the other is, you know, we have all these people in our work lives that we don't choose, right? Our boss or, you know, our team members or whatever. But there are some people that we can choose. So let's, let's think about that before we pick those folks, right? And each of these is a network in and of itself. Like you might have many people in these categories, but if you think about the person that's top of mind or the person you have the best relationship with, it'll give you a really good sense of, of where, where you put your trust and where you spend your time. So CHAMP, C-H-A-M-P, is an acronym for these five different categories of people. C stands for customer or constituent. So are you really out there talking to the people who use or benefit from your products or services? If you're not, I would say that's the very first place you need to go. Absolutely. Because you cannot innovate, you cannot stay on task, you cannot serve your communities in the not-for-profit space if you're not out there to actually talking to people about what do they need. Right. Right? H is for someone you've hired or helped get a job. And I say in the last three months, if you're not constantly referring people to hiring managers or trusted recruiters or writing letters of recommendation, you're probably not creating enough value in your network to be worth other people's time, frankly. Okay. Because you have to give more than you take. Yes. Right? The best way to give is to help people find more gainful employment, more challenging roles, you know, employment at all. Right? So who are you helping with that? Who are you recommending? Um, and I always tell people endorsing someone's skills in Excel on LinkedIn does not count as helping <laughs> them get a job. Like you have to actually do something. Okay. Not, not check a box. Okay. A is for your associate. And this is somebody that is at the same level as you has about the same amount of responsibility. Doesn't have to be in your same organization, but this person is the person that you sanity check with that you pace set with, right? It's kind of, you know, somebody you're going to go out to coffee with when you've had a bad day. Yes maybe a little Bailey's in the coffee. If you've had a really bad day, I get it. Okay. So, you know, who is that person? Most of us have that. M is for your mentor. And we already covered that, right? Who do you yes. learn from? Who are you seeking? Whose advice are you seeking? And P is for your protege. Who are you bringing up with you? Who and are you going out of your up. way? That's one that we, we don't think of nearly as often as we do our customers, for example, or, um, uh, you know, someone that we have hired into our organization. So who are you, who are you mentoring? Who is your, who are you helping to develop? And I know in the nonprofit space, you know, there's a keen awareness of the need for mentorship in the communities. Um, a lot of folks though, when I talk to them, they say, well, I'm so early in my career or, you know, I don't know what I know that's valuable. Right. And I challenge people, even high school students, college students, look, there are whole populations of people in this country that have not graduated from high school and have no idea how they're going to do that. We have the highest per capita prison population in the world in the United States. So just those two populations, if the only thing you know how to do is graduate from high school and fill out a job application or, you know, keep yourself out of trouble you know, and I, and I get that there's a lot going on with our prison system because I was a criminal justice major before. So I get that, right? Like it's not all about what you do. Sometimes it's about who you are, 
But if you can help people just fill out a job application, you can be a mentor. I, and I, I love one of the reasons I love that champ um, framework is that I can see how it would be applicable for an entire nonprofit staff, right? So if I'm the executive director, the champ is not only appropriate for me, but it's also a way that I can help my staff develop, my board members develop. It's a, it presents a framework for conversations around professional development, around um, how to become a more well-rounded, more diverse, more inclusive team and staff, whether that's a board or whether that's a staff team. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. And, you know, it's, it's also true that most of the time, most of us, maybe not our first job out of college, assuming we've gone to college, but pretty much every job after that is because we knew somebody who knew about that job. Absolutely. And that's certainly been true for me. Yeah. So if the people that you know are the ones who are going to know about the open positions in your organization and you want diverse representation in those open positions, you have to know people from diverse backgrounds before those positions become available, right? right? So if you're filling from your network, which most of us do, I mean, let's be honest, that's how the world works, right? So if you're filling from your network and your network all looks like you, your organization's always going to look like that. Well, Amy, I want to thank you for your time today. We have, we have covered a lot of ground and I have learned a lot. Um, but for folks who want to learn more, who want to connect with you directly, perhaps, um, or learn more about your work, maybe give our listeners um, how, they can, how they can reach out to you and how they can learn more about your work. Sure thing. Thank you. So if you are interested in learning more, you can reach me at leadatanylevel.com lead at any level.com. The book is called network beyond bias. And I actually have an offer um, for you, Greg, if you want to put in your show notes, wonderful, uh, a free download, it's 21 insights for more inclusive networking and it's excerpts from the book. Um, just to kind of get your head, your mind working in this direction. Started, so. Yeah. So just I'll send you that started. Taking that first step is, is really important. And Amy, I know you're active on social media also, so folks can see you there. Absolutely. Um, so thank you very much. This has been Amy Wanninger. She is the CEO of Lead at Any Level. Um, and this has been another wonderful episode. I have learned an awful lot. Um, for those who are listening, though, um, always love to hear from you also. So we have some exciting guests coming up. I am really excited um, about a lot of the topics that we'll be talking about in the near future. So please continue to tune in to the podcast. Reach out to me directly if there are guests or topics that are particularly important to you. Um, you can find me at Gregory at NielsenConsults.com. That's N-I-E-L-S-E-N Consults.com. My website is www.NielsenConsults.com. You can also find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, Amy, thank you again for your time and have a great weekend. Thank you. You too.